In To Kill a Mockingbird, we follow the lives of Scout and Jim as they're navigating the strangeness and sadness of racism in the South during the Great Depression. And one of the things that we see most clearly from the kids' perspective is their reclusive neighbor, Boo Radley. And the kids are a bit afraid of him, and they, they tell each other legends about him and what a terrible person he must be. There, there's this sort of gossip that goes around the town that Boo Radley did something real creepy, real bad, real weird, and now he's a recluse, and he's dangerous, and he's scary. But the kids are kind of curious, so they keep trying to devise ways to get him out of his house, but it never really seems to work. If you've read the book, then you know that over time it becomes clear that Boo Radley isn't someone to be feared. In fact, he is quite the opposite of the person that these children suppose him to be. These children have been asking themselves all along, who is Boo Radley? But not just who is he, how is he? Is he mean? Is he a freak? Our gospel text this evening comes in the middle of a triad of stories that Luke tells about Jesus with a very specific purpose in mind. Luke is trying to get us to ask the question, who is Jesus and how is he? What kind of person is he? So together we're going to ask those questions and look at the answer that Luke provides us from this short vignette. In this story where we see Jesus, he's just come from an interaction with a Gentile, a centurion, whose servant was very ill, and he was begging Jesus to come and heal his servant. And as they were on their way, he gets news that his servant has already died, and Jesus says, just believe, and, and he, he says, I will, I will heal your servant. And the man says, I believe. And Jesus tells the crowd that he had not seen faith like this anywhere in Israel. It was only with a Gentile. And now he enters the small village of Nain and he encounters a funeral procession. The only son of a widow has died. And in just those few short words, Luke sums up for us the sorrow and helplessness of this woman. She's a widow and her only son has died, which means she no longer has anyone to care for her, no one to provide for her. She is, in a sense, completely out of options and headed for destitution and death. It's important for us to realize, though, that Jesus isn't just sort of wandering around, randomly bumping into situations. As we've looked at several times over the last few months, whenever we encounter Luke's gospel in the lectionary, there's a deep awareness of Jesus being the spirit-filled man who has been sent by the Father for a specific mission. And he lives moment by moment by attending to his Father, by listening to hear what his Father is saying, by living in the Spirit to know what he must do in this mission. But beyond that, even, Jesus is also revealing himself to be the Messiah. This is who he is. He's the one that Israel had been waiting for. The Messiah was sometimes referred to in Hebrew as Haish, the man. It was just this sort of faceless, cryptic figure that the rabbis would paint mosaics of in smoke and shadow. There were some clear ideas, but they were always shrouded in mystery. One of the clearest, biggest ideas of the coming Messiah that Israel had from her scriptures was that one day a prophet greater than Moses would visit. Moses himself predicted this in Deuteronomy 18. Here they are. Israel has escaped the clutches of slavery in Egypt. They've been led out miraculously by God with signs and wonders. 
but through complaint and disbelief, they have now been wandering around the wilderness for a generation. And now, as the next generation is getting ready to enter the land, Moses retells them their story from the very beginning all the way up to the present day. And he tells them carefully to follow the commands of God in the land. And then he tells them this, that God will raise up for them a prophet like Moses from among their fellow Israelites. God says, I will put my words in his mouth. He will tell them everything I command him. I myself will call to account anyone who does not listen to my words that the prophet speaks in my name. But a prophet who presumes to speak in my name anything I have not commanded, or a prophet who speaks in the name of other gods is to be put to death. You may say to yourselves, how can we know when a message has not been spoken of by the Lord? If what a prophet proclaims in the name of the Lord does not take place or come true, that is a message the Lord has not spoken. That prophet has spoken presumptuously, so do not be alarmed. From the time of Moses' death onward, this little passage in Deuteronomy has been the linchpin of Israelite religious life. They have been waiting for a prophet like him. But as God's people plunged themselves into idolatry that led to captivity, subjection to foreign powers, and eventually expulsion from the promised land, they continually awaited this one who would lead an exodus like Moses had. They subject themselves to foreign powers, and now they really need a new Moses to lead this new exodus, one who would speak with God face to face on their behalf, just like Moses had. It's important for us to realize that prophets don't just do miraculous things. They don't just tell the future. Much of what prophets do is foretelling, yes, but even more is forthtelling. They tell the words of God to the people. And so throughout Israel's history, all of the prophets that came from God were calling the people back to the original message, to the book of Moses, the Torah, those first five books of the, of the Old Testament that we have. And this is something that Jesus also does in his ministry time and time again. He is the prophet. And Jesus shows how true worship of Yahweh routes through the book of Moses and points to him. It reaches its destination in him. Israel had many great prophets, all of whom spoke the words of God and called on the people to return to him with their whole hearts. And Elijah and Elisha were two of the greatest prophets that Israel had seen. But despite all of the miraculous things they did in God's name, they still weren't on par with Moses. And Luke, from the very beginning of his gospel, has been painting Jesus as the prophet that's greater than Moses, the one that they've been waiting for who was promised. And it's here in this account that we actually see some of that because he mirrors with great precision our Old Testament reading. Did you notice that? Here we have two stories, a thousand years apart or more, of a widow whose only son dies, and here is a great prophet in her midst. Luke is doing this on purpose. Jesus is living this out on purpose. And anytime you see this sort of parallelism in Scripture, you want to look at the accounts closely and see what's different about them. And here is the most glaring difference in these two accounts. Elijah does what to raise the life of the boy? He goes upstairs, he does all this ritual action, and he keeps calling on the name of the Lord to come and raise this boy to life. What does Jesus do? He speaks to the boy directly. Get up. Jesus isn't just the Messiah. He's not just the greater prophet than Moses. He is what Luke calls him here for the very first time in his gospel, the Lord. The Lord. This is more than just a man. So who is Jesus? 
He's the prophet greater than Moses. He's the new Elijah. He's the Messiah, the anointed one, but he's more than that. He is God come to visit his people. And just as Moses taught the people to weigh what the prophets said against the truth of what actually happened, so we can weigh and are supposed to weigh the claims of Christ against the fact of his resurrection. That changes everything. We have to go back and reread everything he said in light of the lens of his resurrection, the ultimate prophecy come true. That's who Jesus is. But how is Jesus? What kind of prophet is he? What kind of Messiah is he? Just like Boo Radley, the village gossip around Jesus just sort of swirled and was shrouded in mystery. People thought that he was going to come back and be this big political leader. But here again, Luke is going out of his way to make this plain to us. He doesn't position this story as focused on a great miracle, though one certainly takes place. But if you notice, all of the pronouns in this story, it's not really about the boy, is it? Wouldn't we think that if somebody died and came back to life, that they would kind of be the focal point of the event? But in this story, the focus is almost completely on the mother. It's Jesus as the Lord who's coming and having compassion on this woman who has been left destitute, defenseless in this world. And in his compassion, he restores life to her son and presents him to her. Jesus isn't just the Lord. He's the compassionate Lord. As our translation in the NIV puts it, his heart went out to her. It's almost like he couldn't help himself. He's so filled with compassion just seeing her walk by in this funeral procession. Jesus does not remain impervious to the pain of others. It affects him deeply. His compassion is so deep. Notice what he does. You notice that little sentence there? In verse 14, Then he went up and touched the bier that they were carrying him on, and the bearers stood still. You bet they did. You don't touch that. You become ritually unclean when you touch that. And so, of course, they stopped. What is this guy doing? Why would he do that? That's how deep his compassion went, that he would become ritually unclean, which would be socially and culturally and religiously a huge deal. I mean, in contrast to Elijah, the raising of this boy almost seems effortless on the part of Christ, but he is acting out of deep compassion. He shows himself to be the prophet and the Lord who is so filled with compassion for his broken and unclean creation that he enters into the uncleanness and brokenness of it all and eventually takes on death himself, that he might set his people free. And the response of the crowd in this short story really is the basis for the church. It's the basis for the church universal, and it should be the basis for our church. God has come to help his people. This is the best news ever, and it's not just the people of Israel. It's the people of all nations and tribes of the earth, which means that joy and gratitude are to be the fundamental postures of the church, because the church exists as a result of the deep compassion of the promised prophet. In silence now, consider the compassion of Christ. Meditate upon his intervention in your life. See his friendship toward you, and be filled with joy and gratitude.